Amen. Acts chapter 12 tonight, the great escape, Acts chapter 12. This is actually the last mention of Peter in the book of Acts. Beginning next week, Paul is the prominent figure in the rest of our study of the book of Acts. And we are learning through our study of Acts many things, but one of them is primarily the difference that the Holy Spirit of God makes in our lives. How different were the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, after the Holy Spirit indwelt them in the book of Acts compared to the way they were in the Gospels, even with Jesus while he was still here on earth. Tonight I've divided this chapter up into sort of three sections. We're going to look at the world for a minute. And the world's always going to be the world. Jesus said, In the world, you're going to have trouble and suffering, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus taught his followers, do not be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me before it hated you. And Jesus prepared his followers that even when he ascended to heaven and he was going to build his church, that the gates of hell would oppose, but that the gates of hell would not be able to stop the progress of the church. And we've seen that true for the last several thousand years. The gates of hell would not prevail. So the world's going to be the world. The world's going to treat the church and God's people the way it's going, and that's not going to change. And then we're going to see the Lord. And we're going to be reminded tonight who the Lord is. And the Lord doesn't change either. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Lord who was present in the book of Acts with his people is the same Lord that's present with us today. But then we're going to primarily look at the church. The church 2,000 years ago and you and I today. Because though the world's going to be the world and the Lord's going to be the Lord, you and I have a choice of who we're going to be as the people of God. And we're going to see many things that the early church was doing that was setting down and laying down for us a great example to follow. So let's get into it tonight. You'll see in verse 1, King Herod, one of the Herods. There were a lot of Herods in the New Testament, all the way back to the Herod that had all the babies killed when Jesus was born. Uh, to this Herod. They were all related to each other and they were all bad, okay? And this Herod laid hands on some from the church to harm them and he had James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, executed publicly. He was, as far as we know, the first of the rest of the 11, if you're following me, because Judas obviously has now taken his own life, so there's only 11 of the original disciples left. As far as we know, he is the first martyr out of those 11. And obviously we're told he was the brother of John, the John that laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, the John who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. It's his brother that is publicly executed by Herod. You'll also notice then in verse 3, 
When Herod saw that he pleased the Jews by doing that, then he arrested Peter too. This not only expresses the shamefulness of Herod, but the growing antagonism of the Jewish nation against the church as well. So you have John's brother, James, executed. You have Peter in prison, or arrested, I should say. And then you'll see, this was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which that's an eight-day period, starting with Passover and lasting for eight days. He had him seized, verse 4, put into prison, four squads of soldiers to guard him. Wow. A little overkill there, right? Because Herod planned to bring him out after Passover was over and probably execute him, Peter, as well. So verse 5, Peter was kept in prison. So three things I want us to see that the world is doing here. Obviously, executing, arresting, imprisoning. All these things the world is doing. It's part of the persecution, if you will, and the hatred towards the people of God and the church, okay? Again, God never promised his people that their lives in following him and, and all of that would be easy. What he did say is, you can trust me. And that I have a plan for my church, I have a plan for each of you individually, and there's no better plan than God's plan. And we can trust it. But that's the world, okay? That's the reality that they were living in, and yet it never stopped them. That's what I want us to see in order for us to be encouraged. You know, we may look around today and say, man, it's hard to be a Christian today, and we've got so much persecution. It's not like it was still the way it was for them. And, and sometimes I think we get backing down too easily and, and we don't press forward and just keep going and being the people of God that we need to be because, take this way, I mean it, we can change the world one life at a time through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in essence, the world's not gonna change. It's not going to all of a sudden become better and more accommodating towards us as God's people. So we've got to learn to live in the reality of a world that's never going to totally embrace us, accept us, or, you know, wrap their arms around us. It's always going to be this way. The world is going to always be the world. But the Lord is always going to be the Lord. And I want you to see, first of all, in verse 11, I know I'm getting a little ahead of the story, but I wanted to take it in this order. Notice in verse 11, Peter here is declaring that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. Then if you look over in verse 17, the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he's relating that to his brothers and sisters in Christ and finally, in verse 23, the Lord had had enough of Herod, and it says the Lord struck Herod down. Let's not forget, the term Lord means the one who rules and reigns over the universe that he created. He's the master of his universe. He's always in control. No matter what the world does, God always has the last word. God is the one who defines things and is going to work everything out according to 
his predetermined plan and purpose. And no one or nothing in the universe is going to thwart God. That's why God calls upon his people, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our situation, our challenges, our trials, to trust him to take us through it. And just like there, some may ask, why did James die and Peter's life was spared at this time? I don't know. I can't answer that. But I know God had a plan for James's life and God had a plan for Peter's life. And we know at the end of the Gospel of John, even Peter and Jesus was going back and forth a little bit on that because Jesus was telling Peter that one day he was going to have to lay down his life for Jesus as well and, and become a martyr. And remember, Peter turns and looks at John, the brother of James, and says, well, what about him? And Jesus basically said, that's not of your concern, Peter. If I want him to live till I come back, that's between me and him. You follow me. And so we have here the way of the world and we have here the Lord and what the Lord is doing through it all. But what's God want to see in his people? So you notice again, back to the earlier verses, as Herod was publicly executing James, arresting Peter, imprisoning Peter, then come with me to verse five. Here's where we pick it up about the church. So Peter was kept in prison, but then don't miss this next phrase. But those in the church were earnestly praying to God for him. Now, before we get to praying, I also then want you to jump down to verse 12 for a moment and look at the last phrase of verse 12. Many people had gathered together and we're praying. Let's first talk about, before we talk about the praying, let's talk about the gathering together. That's the first thing that you see the church doing in that day. Gathering together. Coming together. In fact, that's what the word church means. You, you see that word in verse 1. Laid hands on some from the church. Verse 5, but those in the church. It is the Greek word ekklesia. It literally means those called out to come together, called out by God to come together, to leave our individual homes and come together corporately as a fellowship. That's always been God's plan for his people. And today, we desperately need to keep teaching that message because there are so many Christians today that are Lone Ranger Christians out there trying to do it on their own. They're not part of a local church. They're not, they're not in, in, knitted into a local body of believers. They're not regularly coming together. They're not faithfully attending a house of God. And yet when you and I understand what it means to be part of the church, that's exactly our first responsibility is to gather together as God's people and to make it a priority of our lives. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as some are doing, the writer of Hebrews says. Gathering together. 
And let me say this. I'm going to just call us out for a moment. There's a lot of great things I see happening at the Oasis, but you know, one of the ways we have regressed this last year is in the faithfulness to especially our Sunday services by our own people. Because we are growing with a bunch of new people coming and yet our attendance has remained flat. You know why? Because every Sunday there's at least 70, 80, 90 of our people who aren't here. And I realize we're never going to have perfect attendance. There's always something that's going to... But I'm saying there's not a a commitment. It's almost like what's happened is, you know, our people start seeing all these new people coming, and it's almost like we become less faithful, consistent in our attendance to the house of God, even though we've grown by like 75 or 80 people in just the last year, you see, gathering together. But then notice what they did when they gathered together, as we talked about in verse 5 and then in verse 12. They were praying. They were seeking the face of God. There was a lot of things happening. Public executions of Christians. Arresting Peter, the leader of the disciples. Imprisoning him. Intimidating them. You know, taunting them. This was all going on. What was their response? Let's come together and let's take these matters to the Lord. Let's talk to God about these things. Let's unburden ourselves. Let's take our cares and cast them on the Lord. Let's take our fears and let's express them to God. Let's talk these things through with God. Let's seek his help. Let's seek his assistance. Let's go to God in prayer. We need to be a praying people. We need to be a praying church. We need to always make prayer a priority. It was the priority of the early church. It should be a priority with us as well. Prayer is like breathing, my friends. It's what we should do throughout our day. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, we should pray without ceasing. We should always be in communion and constant communication with our God. Praying. How's our prayer life? How's our gathering together? Notice also through this something else that's remarkable. Verse 6. On that very night before Herod was going to bring him out for trial, Peter was what? Sleeping. Sleeping. Here he is, surrounded by all these soldiers, chained already knows that one of his fellow disciples, James, has been executed publicly. He's probably sitting there in prison thinking, this could be my last night on earth. And yet, he's sleeping. Oh, why is that so important? Because the only way you could sleep at a moment like that is when you're totally resting and trusting in your God. And there's too many of us Christians today who aren't sleeping well because we're allowing 
the cares and the anxieties and the worries and everything and we can't shut our brains off and we're not really learning to totally rest and trust in the Lord no matter what the situation is, no matter what the circumstances are, realizing that the Lord has always got us and got this situation and we can rest in him and we can trust him and we can have some sweet sleep. That was Peter. That was Peter. God wants his people to be able to sleep at night knowing we can trust him. We can rest in him. And we can get good sleep and and allow our bodies and our, our emotions and our spirit to be recharged. But too many folks are seeing good sleep stolen away from them because we're really not putting everything in the Lord's very capable hands and trusting him with even our own lives like Peter was doing at that moment. I mean, you can just imagine what was going through. How would we feel if somebody from the Oasis, a prominent member of our church, maybe one of the elders, had just been publicly executed? Downtown Gilbert took him down there and publicly executed him, and you're sitting there going... Now they've imprisoned me. Would you and I be able to sleep that night not knowing what the next day may hold because we just trust the Lord so much that we just put it all in his hands and if if this is what God's will is, so be it. That's where Peter was at. So you see the church. The world's going to be the world. The Lord's going to be the Lord. Who are we going to be? Well, they were gathering together. They were praying Peter was sleeping, and notice this, verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the prison cell, struck Peter on the side, woke him up, saying, get up quickly, and his chains fell off. And listen, my friends, God is still taking chains off of people today. God can break the chains that's wrapped around our lives. God can take what has got us bound and can break it all down. The angel said to him, fasten your seatbelt, Peter, and put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And the angel said to him, get your cloak, follow me. Peter went out and followed him, not even realizing what was happening, though the angel was real, but he was seeing a vision he didn't know. You know, sort of still that that stupor that some are in. Some people can't wake up right away. I'm one of those weird people that can. You know, like when I get up in the morning, I'm up. I'm, I'm raring to go. Not everybody's that way. Peter must have been one of those slow getter-uppers. He needed a couple cups of coffee in order to, you know. And they passed through the first and second guards, verse 10, and they came to an iron gate. Why does the word of God want to mention it's an iron gate? Because notice what had happened. It opened by itself. Well, not really. It opened because God opened it. God can break chains. God can open up iron gates. Because again, he's the Lord. And he went outside, walked down a narrow street, and once the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, notice what he said. Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Gathering, praying, sleeping. The next one I want you to see, verse 11, knowing. God wants his people to continually be knowing him more and more. And this word knowing speaks about knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
The greatest pursuit of our life should be what Paul said. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. I want to know him. One thing Paul was consumed with, knowing his God more and more every day. That should be what we, the church, are engaged in. All pursuits of our life should be, in a sense, coming together as as streams into one big stream of saying, I want to just know my God. I want to pursue knowing him deeper and and so that I I not just have a superficial knowledge of God, but I've got a deep knowledge of God. And it's a knowledge of God that builds conviction and confidence in me because it's a knowledge that God wants to give all his people that is beyond a shadow of a doubt. How many things do you know today through God and through his revelation that you can honestly say, I know these things, I believe these things, I trust these things beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's where God wants us to get to. And God wants to continue to build and grow that amount of of knowledge into more and more stuff about him, you see. And Peter was like, ah, now I know. Because Peter was still growing Even though he was the leader of the disciples, he never stopped growing as well. God had delivered him from the hands of Herod because Herod's hand wasn't in control. The hand of the Lord was in control. And then from everything the Jewish people were expecting to happen. See, the Jews expected, well, James is dead. Now we're going after Peter and Peter's going to die too. Nope, God had the last word. But they were expecting Peter to die. That's that next word I want you to zero in on. Gathering, praying, sleeping, knowing, expecting. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at this sort of humorous story that comes next. When Peter realized he went to the house of Mary, Mary the mother of John Mark. There are many Marys in the New Testament. This is another Mary. Where many people had been gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the outer gate, a slave girl named Rhoda answered. She recognized Peter's voice and was so overjoyed. She did not open the gate, but ran back and told them Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you've lost your mind. But she kept insisting it was Peter. And they kept saying, it's his angel. The Jews had a belief that in some way, in some translations say it's his spirit, it's his ghost, that probably something had already happened to Peter in prison, and this was just some supernatural manifestation of Peter, but it wasn't really Peter. So I want to stop there. I want to talk about expectations. Because let's not forget, the church was praying for Peter while he was in prison. So then my question is, what were their expectations in their prayers? Were they simply praying for God to be with Peter while he was in prison? Was there expectations for God to watch over Peter while he was in prison? Did they ever pray something as audaciously as thinking that somehow God could rescue Peter and deliver him out of prison? Or was that not even on the table of their prayers? And the reason I say that is because it doesn't seem it was. It seems like whatever they were praying for within regards to Peter being in prison, 
they hadn't raised the level of their expectations of their God to include the fact that their God could literally bring Peter out of prison because they were saying, there's no way that's Peter. And, and that's important for us to wrestle with because God wants us to honor him by the magnitude of our requests. Big God, big requests. Nothing's too hard or difficult for him. Small God, small requests. And it seems like even though the early church was doing the right thing, praying and praying for Peter while he was in prison, their expectations of their God while he was in prison was pretty low. Because here's God doing something way beyond what they were praying for, way beyond what they were expecting. They weren't expecting Peter to actually show up. And I say that only as a challenge to us and as an encouragement to us, that when we are praying to our God, let's honor him by the magnitude of our requests. Let's remember that our God can do anything he is a miracle worker. He is a way maker. There is nothing too hard or difficult for him. Now, that doesn't mean he's obligated to do it, but there's nothing wrong with us asking for things and expecting him. Because here's what I found. When I come with an expectancy of what my God can do, my God shows up. If I come with no expectancy, then I'm not going to see my God move like he could or like he should. And so we see the church gathering and praying and Peter sleeping and Peter knowing and the church expecting, the Jews even expecting. Then notice this, verse 16. Peter had to continue knocking until they opened the door. That's the next one, knocking. Persistence and perseverance is sometimes necessary before some doors will be opened. Now, God opened the iron gate immediately. But if Peter would have become discouraged after knocking for a while and nobody opened the door and just said, oh, the heck with it, I'm leaving and I'm going somewhere else. No, he stayed there and he knocked. And you and I have to learn to knock and keep on knocking sometimes because there's only some doors that will be open to us when we persevere and persist in knocking. What did Jesus say? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be open. And all three of those, ask, seek, and knock, are in the present tense. In other words, Jesus says, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. We give up too easily, even as God's followers. And God wants to build into us a resolve and, and a determination to not get so easily discouraged just because the door doesn't immediately open for us. Keep on knocking because some doors will only open when we keep on knocking. When they saw him, they were greatly astonished. Literally, they were beside themselves. 
they were not expecting to see Peter at all. Verse 17, he motioned to them with his hand to be quiet and he related to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers these things and then he left and went to another place. The next word I want you to zero in on in verse 17 is the word relating. He related to them what the Lord did. You and I always need to be telling the stories of our God to one another. Listen to what God has done. Listen to the answer to my prayer that God gave me. God wants us to learn as his people to relate our God stories to one another for the mutual encouragement of one another and strengthening of one another. As we hear what God is doing in other people's lives and in our fellowship, it should encourage us and strengthen us. And it might even encourage others to go, man, I, I need to start you know, getting more involved and, and seeking my God more and because I'm missing out because God's not moving and working that way in my life and maybe it's because I'm not knocking and I'm not seeking and I'm not asking and I'm, I'm not gathering together and I'm not praying and I'm not trusting and all of these things. But when you and I hear what God's doing, it, it should light some kind of fire inside of us to go, well, if God's doing that in their life, then maybe he could do that in my life too. And so we have to relate these things to each other. That's one of the things you see the early church doing in the book of Acts is they're always telling the stories of God to one another. Listen to what my God has done. That's not drawing attention to us. That's magnifying our God and what he's done. A couple others. I'm not going to read verse 18 all the way down through, but basically Herod wants to get out of town. He's sort of been a little embarrassed by the whole Peter thing. And he sets these guards out to try to figure out what happened and they can't figure anything out. He has them all executed. Innocent men has them all executed. Herod, Herod was a, a cruel, ruthless, hateful individual. And God had given him so many opportunities to straighten his life out and to acknowledge God, and he would not do it. In fact, one day, verse 22, the crowd began to shout, oh, Herod's a God, not even a man. And notice verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down. The term struck down are terms of God's judgment upon someone. And God's finally said, enough is enough. I'm taking you out, Herod. It's a reminder again that the Lord is in control. God can remove people in leadership at any time he wants to, and he can put people in leadership anytime he wants to. Because he's the Lord. But notice the primary reason why God struck him down, verse 23, because he did not give the glory to God. And you want to talk about a humiliating death. He was eaten by worms and died. The great King Herod, right? So the next word I want you to zero in on is the word honoring. Honoring. 
That's what the phrase give the glory to God really means, to honor God, to acknowledge and appreciate God's worth and value. That's what we as God's people should always be focused on. Call it worship, call it adoration, call it praise, call it magnifying him, exalting him, lifting him up. It is honoring the Lord. We should all be honoring the Lord with our lives, in our lives, and through our lives. Even Paul says to the Corinthians, even if we're eating and drinking such routine, mundane things that we do every day, we should do all to the glory of God. We should honor him in everything in our lives because it's because of him and through him that we even have food and drink and breath and life and all of those things. Notice that in spite of the world being the world, verse 24, the word of God kept on increasing and multiplying. Again, it is the example of Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. One more word, verse 25. So Barnabas and Saul, this new team, this new partnership, returned to Jerusalem when they had completed their mission, bringing along with them John Mark. The final word, completing or finishing. They did not quit. They did not stop until they had fulfilled and accomplished everything that God gave them to do. God is that way. God is a completer. God is a finisher. And we are to be thankful for that. Paul said, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue it and complete it. God's never going to give up on us. Jesus said, some of his last words on the cross, it is finished. Jesus did everything that his father wanted him to do, accomplished it all, and did not stop until it was done. God wants us to have that same mentality when it comes to whatever his will is for us, whatever his mission is, whatever service he's called us to, whatever ministry he's He's entrusted to us. He wants us to finish it and complete it before we stop. To see it through all the way to the end. To dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's. Paul did this, right? He says in 2 Timothy, I finished my course. I crossed the finish line that God had for me. And God wants us to do the very same thing. What we learn in Acts 12, the world's going to be the world. Executing, imprisoning, arresting. The Lord's going to be the Lord because he's in control. Who's the church going to be? Who are we going to be? And the church in Acts chapter 12, they were gathering, they were praying, they were sleeping, They were knowing, 
They were expecting, they were relating, they were honoring, and they were completing. And those are the things that you and I, as the church today, need to follow in our own lives. Father, we thank you tonight for this time in your house. We pray, God, not only that we have been strengthened, but, Lord, that we've been challenged. Lord, the early church was a tremendous group of people that made great sacrifices for their Lord Jesus Christ, but also through those sacrifices made great strides, spreading the gospel, making disciples, seeing people's lives transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God. And Lord, we want that today. We want to be a church that completes and finishes everything you have for us on this earth. We as individual Christians should have that same, that same idea, God, that, Lord, don't take us home until we've completed everything, Lord, you have for us on this earth. May we continue, God, to be a church that gathers together faithfully, that is praying, that is trusting you so that we can, and resting in you so that we can sleep, that, God, we're knowing you more and more. We're expecting you to do great things. We're relating our God stories to one another. We're honoring you through our worship, and we're completing the mission, God, that you've given to us. Oh, God, may you work through us and work in us in these days because, Lord, the world needs you, and, Lord, we need to declare you more and more in the days in which we live. May we be a lighthouse, God, in this area. Use us, God, to your glory and to your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thanks for being here.